Hello, I'm Brett Hutchins, and I'm pleased to say we've reached episode 26 of the Media Sport podcast series. Thank you for downloading and listening. This discussion offers a rare treat, a face-to-face conversation with a guest in the radio studios in the Monash Media Lab in Melbourne. I'm sitting with Kim Toffoletti from Deakin University and the author of an impressive new book, Women Sport Fans, Identification, Participation, Representation, published by Routledge this month. It is, as once was said before, the intrusion of digital publication and e-books into our lives hot off the presses, and I recommend it to anyone interested in sport, fandom, and all feminist media and politics. I've been reading Kim's research for several years. She's a fine writer and thinker who manages to execute a tricky combination in her work. Theoretical sophistication, accessible presentation and a self-reflexive political sensibility that is willing to confront contradictions and tensions in social and cultural life instead of ignoring them or just explaining them away. It's an approach evident in her other books and editing collections, which include Sport and Its Female Fans, co-edited with Peter Mewitt, Baudrillard Reframed, and Cyborgs and Barbie Dolls, with the latter two books published by I.B. Taurus. Her research on a range of topics, including sport, gender, technology and the body, can be found in journals such as International Review for the Sociology of Sport, Feminist Media Studies, Communication and Sport, and Gender Work and Organisation. She is also an active media commentator on issues related to gender and popular culture. And anyone listening should check out Kim's invited lecture on footballers behaving badly and changing attitude towards women that was delivered as the annual Pamela de Noonan lecture at the Australian National University. Just Google Kim Toffoletti and footballers behaving badly and you'll find the link to the lecture on YouTube. Let's begin with a question about the new book. What does the study of female sport fans reveal about the world in which we live and why is it important right now? I think the book is is really timely. We're at this moment where there's this explosion of interest uh, in women's engagement in sport. We see this in Australia. We see this globally. So, you know, in short, I think women in sport is really hot right now. And often in studies of sport, the focus really is on women's participation as athletes. And what tends to happen is we tend to neglect other ways in which women might actually be engaged in sport. And so for me, fandom is one of those kind of key key sites or key areas where women actually might be able to participate in sport without necessarily, you know, donning a a pair of sweatpants (laughs) and and getting out there. Um, And that this has real significance for women. So in that regard, I think that the book is... um, is asking us to to think about this question of women's sports participation more broadly. Uh, I think the other kind of imperative that the book is speaking to is um, a real shift, I think, in the global sport landscape where major men's sports are really starting to pay attention to women as fans um, in a a real sort of market-based sense. So this idea of there's this untapped market and we can recruit them to help us meet, um, you know, particular aims. And often they're economic, but in the book what I'd argue is that um, the agendas are also often about, in some ways, embracing women on the one hand, but making sure that um, 
relations of power remain largely um, unchanged. So in the book, the question really is about, you know, what does what kind of work does this sort of visibility that's being given to women's sports band, what kind of work does that do actually, um, you know, br- more broadly, culturally and politically? What are the, I suppose, historical or contemporary events that have really triggered your focus on this? Is there a particular set of sports or a particular set of fandom practices that have really sort of, you know, trained your eye on, on why this is significant? Well, I guess uh, part of the reason why I've written this book is really it's come from, you know, 10 years of study of women's sports fans in Australia. So my research there was with uh, Peter Mewitt, a lovely colleague of mine at Deakin who's now retired and living the good life. Uh, But he has left me this wonderful legacy of um, exploring women's uh, sport fan practices, experiences. Uh, And that study looked at over 70 uh, women who followed AFL who identified as fanatics. And really in doing that study, um, I became... it became quite clear to me that uh, sport fandom was really central to their lives and a lot of the kinds of assumptions around why women follow sport were just not true. So this idea that women only uh, go to AFL matches to uh, accompany their partners and they sit there quite bored or, in fact, they're just going to watch male players who they think are really hot or they're bringing their kids because their kids like sport... uh, that didn't really seem to be that the primary motivator for these women. And so uh, that uh, experience really, you know, got me into thinking about women's sport fan practices. Uh, what also uh, came out of the study was the fact that the Australian context is quite specific. So when we talk about women's sports fans, uh, recognising that within Australia, and particularly AFL, there's a lot of scope for women to actually participate as fans and be included as fans, and there's historical and cultural reasons for that. Uh, but that's not necessarily the same across all sports, and it's not necessarily the same across all countries. Mm. And so for me, writing this book was about saying, we can't talk about female sports fandom as this universal thing. Women love sport. Hooray! They're all the same because they all love sport. The book says, actually, no, that's not the case. And we really need to pay attention to the fact that uh, we need to think about specific sports and their histories and women's engagement with them as fans. And we need to think about uh, national contexts um, and how broader global forces are actually uh, impacting on how women practice their fandom and participate in fans within, uh, national, uh, within national contexts. I want to come back to the issue of the global landscape in a second, but as you were speaking there, you, you spoke about the fact that, you know, women don't just love sport. Now, that raises the questions of the different sorts of relationship fans in general, but also w- women fans or female fans have with sport. And it, it ranges every... People follow sport for all sorts of reasons. One, routine, ritual. Um, they enjoy misery. I mean, it's actually a, a really important part of following sport is that, you know, a lot of the time you're unhappy with the performance of either the athlete you're following or your team. Um, but it serves a whole range of functions. So what are your observations around when you, when you look closely at different types of female fandom, the sorts of relationships or connections that, are, that you can see there? Well, I think that question, uh, that issue really of um, belonging is really central mm-hmm. So identifying as a fan is not necessarily about always practising a particular set of behaviours. In fact, I'm quite critical of a kind of 
way of understanding fandom as, you know, fandom is doing this and therefore that makes you a fan. Going to every match makes you a real fan or knowing statistics makes you a real fan. Uh, because those kinds of uh, measures, I think, um, around fan motivation or behaviour already set up a particular set of practices as ideal. Mm. And so women who might not be participating for those reasons, yeah. and that might be because of, um, for example, firm family circumstances. Uh, I've got three kids under six and I have not been to an actual football match for a really long time because the practicalities of doing so is actually just really bloody hard, if I'm allowed to say that on the podcast. Um, does that make me less of a fan? Some might say yes. But I'd say, well, look, you know, that's, you know, over the life course, there might be reasons why women are, are invested in fandom perhaps in different ways that might not involve a particular set of practices and behaviours. Um, women might like fandom because actually, actually they do enjoy watching players' bodies. Um, does that make them less, less worthy as fans? So those questions are sort of valuing what constitutes fandom, I think, is one of the key things I'm trying to do here. So, well, actually, do we need to uh, re-evaluate those kinds of sets of standards in the first place? That said, I do think there are, there are a number of things that women really get out of being sports fans. Uh, there's just pleasure in, in the spectacle and in participating in something that's so much bigger than you. Uh, Following a particular player of a team and knowing that others do too gives you a, a shared sense of, of identity. Um, and that, you know, that's really important and meaningful in, you know, a world that's so fragmented and fast-paced and uncertain and, you know, the kinds of anchors, I guess, that we used to all rely on to kind of ground ourselves in the world, in our communities, um, aren't necessarily always there. But our sport is, is a place where... Um, those kinds of loyalties are, are, are still existent, and even if your team does move interstate, you can still <laughs> you can still follow them and create some sense of community in this wonderful virtual uh, world that we inhabit. So certainly, those kinds of sense uh, that sense of belonging and identity is really central to a lot of women's experiences of fandom. Your book speaks particularly about the notion of transnational feminism, and you you're, you seem to be arguing that we not only for uh, what might be a particularly predictable notion of a more complicated, diverse idea of what's going on here, but is that with media comes um, uh, different horizons of attention. So what, what are you trying to get at with the, the term transnational feminism? Well, I use transnational feminism as a guiding framework for my analysis. So in trying to speak about the the global phenomenon of women's sports fandom or this sense that women's fandom globally is growing and we see this in statistics. So FIFA released statistics of, you know, who's watching the World Cup. We see other big organisations like the International, um, the ICC, um, the International Cricket Council uh, spruiking its, uh, its growing female fan base. So we have a lot of these kinds of international sports organisations really promoting themselves as female friendly. And so in order to make sense of this, I'm trying to find, I guess, a way of trying to understand how women's particular experiences are rendered globally and situated. Uh, and transnational feminism provides a way to think across national borders into these more globalised spaces. So it's not only the movement of culture through media, but also the movement of bodies across, across borders. 
So within Australia in particular, this idea of sort of the multicultural cricket fan is something that the ICC is, is very attracted to. So it's not just cricket, female cricket fans in India and in Australia, but what happens when um, we have these migrant populations moving. Mm. And so transnational feminism, I guess, is a way of trying to think critically about women's engagements with sport across borders and also recognising that much wider global forces globalisation, capitalism, patriarchy, um, even sort of uh, what I talk about in the book as sort of post-feminist sentiments, are actually having quite specific impacts nationally. So a, fem- a woman uh, cricket fan's experience in Australia is not going to be the same as it might be um, in, in India or it might be in Pakistan or it might be in the UK. Um, and so trying to make sense of that... Uh, Transnational feminism gives us a way to try to make sense of that by drawing attention to the fact that these much broader global processes are having very local impacts. So it's about being culturally specific. It's about uh, recognising the kinds of assumptions that we might be making about particular sporting bodies and what they might look like and what they might be able to do. Um, How that creates particular inclusions and exclusions around who constitutes a legitimate sports fan. So for me, this is a feminist question. Because what it does is it reinscribes hierarchies around what kinds of bodies allow, allow, are allowable and are not allowable in particular spaces. Uh, so in Australia, for example, there is no ban on women entering sports grounds. Does that mean that women are free and equal as sports fans? Well, my research which suggests that women still encounter a lot of um, discriminative, discriminatory practices as sports fans. If we look to the case in Iran... There are sanctions against women entering sports grounds. Does that mean that their experience is necessarily... uh, Can we characterise it or constitute it as necessarily worse? Well, I think in doing so, what we do is create these particular hierarchies of sort of white Western women as liberated and women in other countries as somehow oppressed. And so we need to be careful, I think, of those kinds of characterisations. That's a very dangerous thing to assume someone else's subjectivity. Um, but where does the normative, is there a normative standard or, or some sort of ethic that, that you're actually aspiring to here through a feminist politics? Or is it, is it, is it always a question of negotiation? Yeah, look, transnational feminism really uh, emerged as a response to uh, white Western sort of second wave feminism and a sort of universalising of women's issues. Mm. And so it really tried to critique kind of uh, colonialism and modernity and those sorts of myths of sort of women's progress. And so recognising that, um, and perhaps that's the key that you're mm. wanting to unlock, uh, unlock here, Brad, or get me to talk about, um, is about saying, well, that doesn't mean that we can't speak about women's experiences um, as, a, as a social group. But what it is is recognising that they, they're not all the same. And I think a lot of the kind of hype around women's sports fans globally that we're seeing now, this, you know, this new emerging market, it does tend to universalise. And so what the book is trying to do is say, hang on a minute, actually, we can't just uncritically celebrate this. We need to be looking at what's happening in particular countries at particular moments, and we can't speak about these fans as one kind of coherent uh, mass. I mean, that said, uh, what transnational feminism advocates for is building solidarities 
So saying, okay, we might be different, but there are shit that we share, share struggles as women. Those struggles might not always be exactly the same, mm. but can we find points of connection and solidarity where we're actually supporting each other without imposing particular kind of uh, lens, a, a white Western lens of what needs to be done here? Uh, so in the book, I talk a little bit about these, um, actually quite a lot about these transnational um, alliances and connectivities. So one example I use is um, a couple of years ago, the Iranian national team was here playing as part of the Asian World Cup, the soccer World Cup for, uh, or association football or football, however you might want to term that. Uh, and that raised some really interesting debates around um how women fans were being represented in Australia and in Iran around this uh, event. And uh, the power of social media, really, for women uh, located in both countries to actually uh, speak to each other as fans of Team Meli, uh, the, the name of it, the Iranian national team, uh, without necessarily uh, trying to make... Uh, equivalences between female fans in Iran and Iranian Australian female fans, uh, but trying to look a little bit at uh, the ways in which they can engage with each other and support each other, despite the fact that the circumstances under which they're supporting these teams are actually quite different, Australia and Iran. So these kinds of, I think, uh, transnational kinds of solidarities are spaces where we can actually think really productively about uh, how women sports fans in very different circumstances uh, can actually make forge connectivities and uh, find uh, find alliances um, through which to contest perhaps male-dominated um, ways of sort of experiencing sport. And that example, I mean, it speaks to the way in which the book um, intervenes, I suppose, in the notions of or, or analyses feminist sport in politics, um, certainly feminist sort of analysis. But it also, the other contribution of the book is it makes us sort of look slightly differently at fandom and fandom practices. So, you know, how do you see bringing uh, the way you've approached women's sporting fandom, what does that do to the way we understand fandom more generally? what this book does is says, well, actually, you know, perhaps fandom is not necessarily about trudging to the ground every week and, and wearing your scarf, that uh, we have um, a range of other ways in which people... Uh, in, engage with sport or practice their fandom, whether that's um, uh, video games or sports uh, sports games, online gaming, um, fantasy sport, uh, through social media outlets. Uh, so one might not uh, get a whiff of a football ground or even sit in front of a telly, but they might be able to uh, mm. live stream or get live updates um, or, or by mobile phones. So it's really sort of, ch I think, changing the way in which uh, people practice fandom, thereby the kind of parameters through which we might understand fandom are actually also shifting too. And sitting within all this is the question of why anyone would write a book about fandom or let alone women's sports fans, which brings us to the question of your experience of sport or attitude towards sport. I mean, wh how, how does your autobiography connect with, I suppose, the sporting ground or the sporting screen? Yeah, look, I can't, I can't claim to have, have been an elite athlete in my past life, my former life, or even my past lives. In no way um, can, can I make that claim. So I'm not coming from that space. Um, 
that said, you know, I was always um, engaged with sport as a, as a child, uh, raised with uh, three brothers, so there was no option but to make up the... Uh, if you wanted to have teams of two and two, you kind of just had to play. Um, and look, you know, really, it, it was never... As the older sister, there was never any question of my, my place there. So I always felt quite comfortable and confident playing sport. Um, migrant background, so parents who, you know, as part of the assim assimilationist project swiftly took up a Australian Football League team and uh, trudged their children along every weekend to follow the Mighty Hawks. And, you know, so much pleasure in that, really. And so recognising those kinds of pleasures. And I think also, um, you know, intertwined with that is, you know, an emerging feminist politic and, and also being able to say, well, there's, there's pleasure there. But I also recognise that not all of this is, is particularly fair, you know, recognising that the only sport we ever really watched or engaged with was men's sport, um, that throwing like a girl was an insult. And I was quite proud because I was never accused of that. In fact, I was kind of held out as an anomaly. Wow, she can catch a ball. So, but just recognising that those things too mattered, mm -hmm. that, you know, people were kind of perceiving you through that lens. Um, and so, you know, as a, as a, a dedicated fan, um, not only of, of AFL, um, also, uh, you know, I, I guess my migrant background um, drew me to soccer. Um, so also a, a fan of the of the A-League, um, the victory more specifically, um, but also, you know, loving things like women's tennis. So I, I'm a real appreciator of sport um, and also my own place as a, as a female fan, I think, um, drew me to this. More specifically... Um, really when accusations of sexual assault came out um, against AFL football players about 10 years ago, really tested me um, as a feminist to, you know, perhaps question whether this is all sweetness and light and, and really that, you know, a lot of the kinds of masculinist kind of practices that are promoted in sports um, don't necessarily always just uh, happen on field, but in fact are part of a broader continu continuum around celebrating particular kind of masculinity which is often involved with you know um, competition um, and that that extends also to you know competition for women subjugation control power those kinds of things and um, it really made me question I think uh, sport as an institution and masculinist sports so for a while there I think it really um, really put me off sport but I'm, I think I'm back I'm back in the place where I'm actually really enjoying the newfound sort of pleasures in women's sport and, and visibility mm. around that and also recognizing that sport can't do everything it might not be perfect but it can still be meaningful and pleasurable um, for a lot of women even though we might see the limits of it or how it can be exclusionary in in many ways for women it's funny you raise the um, the issue of I suppose, football of violence mm. against women particularly. And I can only speak personally as someone who grew up in a, a different code, but a very violent sport. And, yeah, I must admit, you're sitting there with various commitments or proclaimed commitments to social justice. One can't help but feel... Actually, I must admit, you know, not only deeply ambivalent, but you know, somehow compromised as I've watched over the years at times. And you, and you seem to be saying there that you've, you, not that you've accepted it, but that you're, you're in a space where what shifted there to sort of 
that you're actually enjoying it more than you once were? Has it been a change in the game itself? Has it been the policies that have been instituted? Has it been the coverage and the fact there is outrage about these things now when they were going on in the past and no one commented? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point that we're at a space now where there, there is actually a much deeper engagement, I think, with these kinds of critical questions. And I think that's only a good thing, really. Um, and I think it does allow us to also recognise that these things are messy and complex. And you did mention that um, very kindly in your introduction to me, that absolutes don't work for me. They, they can't help me. They, they don't help me understand all the really complex, messy things that perhaps, um, you know, we as individuals uh, come up against in our lives, that we might believe in something, but it doesn't necessarily always follow through on our actions. And that's not because we're... Um, inadequate or that we um, fail to live up to our principles but that life is is complex mm. so you know for me to give up sport entirely also means to give up time with my family where you know going to a match with my you know now 82 year old dad you know to lose that ritual to me is to actually just deny myself something that that matters and that's important to me um, at, at the level of the familial um, and so you know perhaps just recognizing that it's not going to be perfect um, but there are still there's still so much significance and meaning that can be drawn from the activity. Um, but I'd like to think that you know things like the books and my research also allows a critical space to keep asking questions and perhaps you know push this this broader social conversation that we're having around women in sport um, to you know to to keep asking questions. I think we're far from from really seeing this as resolved that somehow you know there's more attention to women in sport. Therefore, um, this is no longer a problem. Uh, women have now neatly been incorporated and we can just get back to business. Um, I'm, you know, quite quite critical of that sort of perhaps celebratory rhetoric. And you, you contribute to the broader conversation through, you're, you know, you're an active media commentator and a, someone who, as anyone who's listening to this will have worked out, is actually quite good at speaking accessibly and publicly. I speak a lot. I'm a talker. What can I say? Well, that, that, that's sort of one of the requirements of the job. Um, but, you know, you're not afraid to translate your scholarly concerns for a, a wider audience. And, and I mentioned the, the lecture that, you know, you gave in for Pamela, the Pamela de Noon, which was about footballers behaving badly. And this brings with it all sorts of responses, I'm sure, to your public commentary. But what do you get from that, I suppose, as a thinker or as someone who is seeking to contribute to a broader conversation? Well, most of the feedback I get, and, and be, you know, podcasts is a bit different to like a live talkback experience, is that, you know, women are, are jumping at the opportunity to actually have their experiences recognised. So the fact that they're seeing themselves you know, represented in some way or that their experience is, is being um, being rendered. So I might talk about different kinds of ways in which women came to football and women are like, yes, that's me, that's what happened to me, you know. And and to me that's wonderful that um, that we're actually uh, being able to, you know, broaden an, a, a more public understanding of what fandom um, might constitute, how uh, that to actually say, no, actually women are engaging in, in sports fandom and enjoying it in these ways. Um, and then, you know, we have a broader social expect, uh, you know, expectation and a, a broader social uh, understanding of women's experiences. So for me, knowing that uh, it might be, you know, sh shifting the parameters or moving the goalposts, to use a good old sporting analogy there, uh, is actually really terrific. And, you know, as you said, the conversation has moved. So if we can talk about women's place in sport 
uh, in ways that challenge some of the stereotypes. What we do, I think, is every time we just we just allow the conversation to become a little bit more open and that it can't be shut down anymore. But when they say, oh, well, women aren't interested in sport, you say, well, hang on. You know, there's, there's this research and this research and this research that's saying, well, well, they are and in these ways and you can't ignore that anymore. So just have being able to, you know, push the conversation into new directions, I think, is um, is, is really rewarding. Have you come to this topic at the right time or is it is it something is there something going on globally in your mind that that is uh, this is the moment to understand these things because it, the, you spoke about the economic but there's something more than just a market going on there Absolutely and look I agree I think you know the explosion of, of women's participation and girls particip- participation in sport is so tremendous and we see this echoed in you know government campaigns so uh, you know in advertising so we can see this um, really you know operating across a lot of spheres not just the market sphere but Mm. you know in terms of um, government policies around health and participation uh, women's um, you know gender equity and diversity debates are huge Uh, particularly sports organizations are are no longer able to ignore that they're in fact they're required to speak to equity and diversity agendas so we can certainly uh, kind of, you know, canvas all of those kinds of, you know, possibilities as, as you know, contributing, I think, um, to, to women's participation. But I actually think that the risk is, is as women get more visible than the, uh, you know, as participants in sport, then questions of gender injustice risk being evacuated. That, oh, somehow, you know, we've got girls playing sport now, so there's no problem anymore. And that concerns me. And I think, you know, part of why, you know, I wrote this book right now is to say, well, actually, forms of gender injustice operate a bit differently now. So it's not about saying women aren't allowed to play sport, but that, or that women, uh, you know, aren't being represented um, in media accounts, but that, um, you know, these things are operating in, in, in perhaps more subtle and sophisticated ways. So let's remember that sport is still possibly the only major sort of social institution which segregates according to gender so in workplaces both men and women you know work together um you know apart from amateur you know mixed teams at elite sport level men and women do not play together so you might have lots of little girls and boys playing soccer but there's an age at which they are told that they are not allowed to do that anymore which frankly is ridiculous by the way well i mean i think that but, there's, but there is a very um, strong counter-argument to that, Brett, that's being offered, which is, well, actually, men and women are, are physiologically different and therefore they cannot play together. And so as a feminist, you know, and, I, and I'm not the only one fe- sport feminist who says this, but there's many of us who, you know, question those kinds of assumptions around male physical strength as always being superior to female, or that, in fact, physical strength is the only criteria through which one might be a successful athlete. Uh, and so those kinds of... Uh, again, questioning those kinds of values and assumptions is, is really important work that we still need to do. The other is this idea that somehow if women are visible, that um, that they've made it. We have a new AFLW, Australian Football League Women's um, uh, launch last year. So again, for those who are not non-Melbourne or non-Australian listeners, uh, one of the major national football codes has just launched its Women's League. They're very enthusiastic about this and certainly it, it, it demonstrates a commitment to women's sport. Uh, at the same time, these athletes are being paid a paltry amount 
there are still, you know, huge um, inequities. They're not being treated like their male counterparts. And what's quite interesting about the conversation, for example, social media as a space where we might be able to sort of um, uh, celebrate these kinds of events is there's a lot of... Um, a lot of fan discussion that is very uh, critical of women's involvement. So, they, well, they don't, they're not deserving because they're not as good. Or, uh, you know, when they're, as, as, when they're bringing in as much many, in money as male players, then they deserve to be played more. So, again, there are particular criteria and standards around um, what makes one worthy as an athlete or what makes a particular league worthy, um, which means that, you know, women's sport is... It's very easy to relegate women's sport to secondary if you use those kinds of frameworks. And so, you know, I think this book, again, is at this very moment is, is, is intervening in those kinds of debates and trying to say, well, actually, we need to ask questions around why it is that even though we have much more visibility, we still have this idea of women's sport as... Um, oh, it's great that women are involved, but, you know, they're still not as good or perhaps they're not as deserving. Or, yes, they can be involved, but, um, but you know, we, we don't want to disrupt uh, what's the status quo. So they can fit in, but let's not ruffle any feathers or let's not actually uh, change who administers and organises sport, who coaches sport. <laughs> let's, just, let's just make it nice and comfortable. As long as boys don't have to give up any time or space while they're playing sport, then it's great for girls to be involved. Um, but, you know, if we really want um, equity on sports grounds, we need to be actually, you know, I think we need to be, um, we need to be a little bit more radical than that. I, I like using that word. Let's be a bit more radical, Brett. Now, everything you've written about and indeed spoken about today speaks to the fact that you draw from a number of different areas in your research, a number of different disciplines. Now, it's a cruel question in some ways, what I'm about to ask, but if you could re recommend a book that listeners should read, um, what would it be? Goodness. Um, this is going to be totally left of field, but I feel like I want to say it, which is Sarah Ahmed's Living a Feminist Life, which was published this year. I just find it so inspiring because it's feminism for a new age that's that's in some ways challenging us to keep up, you know, a feminist politic in an era where we're told that, you know, w women have now made it in all spheres of life. Um, and, you know, in a way it sits nicely within a more, I, I think there is a sort of more populist feminist kind of um, uh, language and sentiment, which we, you know, which I think this sort of celebration of women in sport is part of. And the risk is if we simply take that as given, that we perhaps, um, you know, drop the ball and actually really are seeing some of the ways in which gender inequity is still op operative. So Sarah Ahmed does a beautiful job, I think, of, you know, talking about our own everyday and how we still often encounter these kinds of politics in the everyday, even though all the kind of broader messages, mm. uh, for example, around women in sport, she doesn't speak specifically around women in sport, but how these... Um, these kinds of messages that somehow, you know, women are here and it's happening and we've got equality and, you know, it's great and we need to celebrate this and say, well, actually, you know, in the everyday, there are still still gender inequities that we, we face. Uh, so I really love that. Can I mention one more? Well, I can't stop you. <laughs> <laughs> you can edit me out, though. Um, the other book um, which I'd, I'd really love to recommend is... Uh, Stacey Pope's Feminisation of Sport Fandom, a Sociological Study, 
which came out earlier this year. And uh, Stacey's book, I think, is a little bit like a sister book to my book. So again, you know, really about promoting women um, who are writing in this field. So say Stacey's book is a very in-depth study of women's sports fans in the north of England. And she looks at two football codes. So it's a very intensive study of a very localised community and their, uh, their ways of doing fandom and the significance and importance of that fandom for women. My book goes wider and it says, OK, we've got all these terrific studies, Stacey's, which is one, which look at women's particular fans of particular sports. How do we now make sense of this more broad sort of global rise in this idea of sort of women as, as, as you know, making their mark um, as sport fans? So the books, I think, are really, really complementary. And Stacey's such a beautiful writer and it's a, it's a great book. So for those who are interested in the shifting nature of sports fandom, I would definitely recommend that. Well, Kim, thank you. It's been a genuine pleasure speaking with you and, and thanks for your time. A pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett, for having me.